Event K Talk YA now presents Night of the Dragon Part 2 from the Shadow of the Fox Trilogy by Julie Kagawa. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished the Shadow of the Fox trilogy by Julie Kagawa. We read the last book, which was called Night of the Dragon. Yeah, man, there was a lot that happened and I need a nap just from reading this. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like in this second half, we kept getting to like the climactic scene And then there was like... A bigger, badder problem. (laughs) Exactly! We had like two seconds of falling action and then it was like, oh, just kidding. We now have to do this and then we do that and then there's more and more and more. And it was just, it was like a never-ending battle against evil. And I guess part of me was glad we didn't know that it was going to be so much because I feel like if you knew, okay, I have to like defeat this person and then defeat this person and then do this and then like put the stone back and then like if you knew all of those things it would be overwhelming but instead it just felt like okay we just have to do this one next step then you accomplish that and it's like oh drat now we have to do this other next step and it kind of just built but it was it was like every time you're like okay I think I get a break or like I finally accomplished my goal nope never mind (laughs) there's something always waiting for you but I did like how a lot of the pieces came together and I was worried that there were going to be some open strands of the story and I didn't feel like there were a ton. I do feel like everything sort of got addressed. I mean, it was like crazy ridiculous how everything came together in some ways, but I did feel like most of my questions were answered about like how people were connected or, Mm -hmm. you know, like even Lady Hanshow at one point I was like, is she... Like, what was her deal? But then she did come back or, you know, like (laughs) things like that. Everything was brought to like a very nice resolution, I felt. Like I felt really satisfied by the ending, even though I agree it was a chaotic way to get there. The ending did come together really nicely. The one thing that I wish we had had that we didn't, it wasn't necessary for the story, but I was looking forward to it in part because Okami is my favorite was figuring out more of Okami's backstory for why he became Ronin in the first place. Yes, and what happened with his brother. I agree. Yeah, but everything else I felt pretty satisfied with. Um, okay, so where did we leave off last week? <clears throat> oh, the Kami were screaming. We had just had another big battle and, <laughs> like, <laughs> defeated a bunch of other dragons. <laughs> uh, yeah, but now the gates of Jigoku were opened, mm-hmm. and Yumiko and Ko end up on the Valley of Lightning facing a pit of swarming demons. Yeah, just a casual Thursday in this world. Um, Yeah. It's still funny to think, like, she's a 16-year-old girl who had never left this group of monks in the forest before all of this happened. And, I mean, yes, she has, like, a good soul, and she has some kitsune magic, and that makes sense. And then we also find out she's a princess or whatever, but... um, (laughs) Right? Let's layer that in. But it is just kind of crazy to think of, like, how far she came on her personal journey, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, if you think about, like, she was this little girl who was, you know, making teapots dance or whatever. 
to mm-hmm. now being this bra- very, very brave young woman who is about to march through the gates of hell, literally, and, like, die fighting all of these demons. And again, like, such high stakes. So it's not just that, like, they're going in all these impossible battles, but they keep losing members of their group or, like, she meets her mom and then her mom goes to bed. You know, like, there's all these other things that would be emotionally draining or you would think you need, like, a moment to make peace with, but there's no time for that either. So I I also really liked that um, Suki, our servant friend played a bigger role in this half of the book she is very helpful in leading um the people where they need to go so she leads yumiko to a cave that will actually take them under the pit of demons which is a much smarter way Mm -hmm. to go and she was just like she was very helpful and i liked that she feels connected to this group and like i felt like she finally had a place with them instead of just being like this weird ghost who like to spy on men kissing (laughs) (laughs) okay i have a question about sagetsu's plan when it came to that part though so he was the one who showed suki the route to guide them through Mm -hmm. right and part of that was because he needed yumiko to go and defeat the female demon the kijo yes and why did he need that defeated? He took something from the shrine, or he took the mask? But what did he... I was, oh. like, confused. Okay, so... Is that what made the dragon go crazy, whatever he took? I think so. Yes. Okay. I think, like, the whole... The Kyushu was interesting. So they realized that it is the manifestation of Kiyomi and her grief after losing Yumiko, and her sadness has been, like, infecting the Moon Clan. So I think... He suggested to, like, set this up so that her negative energy would, like, infect the clan and infect the dragon. Oh, gotcha. Because the dragon was, like, under, like, lived on this island or whatever. Yeah, I remember there was that moment where he's, like, everything has the possibility to be corrupted. Like, all living mm-hmm. things can be corrupted. And he says, like, the Kami dragon has gone mad because it's been living in this mountain that's, like, poisoned with all of the kijo's grief and so now that the dragon is like gonna destroy everything in its path so why did he need them to kill the demon if it had already done its job of making the dragon crazy Hmm. i thought he took something from the shrine that she was protecting and used that to like infect the demon didn't he take like an arrow or didn't he shoot the demon i mean the dragon with an arrow or something there was like so much happening so fast (laughs) i'm kind of confused i don't know i just know that (laughs) He... Yeah, somehow her grief infected both the island and corrupted the Kami dragon. That's true. I agree with that. I'm not exactly sure how that happened, but I agree that that's what happened. <laughs> and you were so right about Sujetsu. Like, oh my gosh, you totally called it. Like, in the first book, you were like, this this guy's up to no good. Yeah, but I totally thought he was going to take the wish for himself, and he went above and beyond. He took the wish-granting power and... <laughs> immortality for himself he wasn't gonna make the wrong wish and have something misinterpreted he just took all the god ability yeah he wanted to become the next harbinger of change right he wanted to like replace the dragon as like the all-powerful beast it totally reminded me of aladdin when jafar (laughs) like he's like i don't just want to be sultan i want to be an all-powerful genie and then there was like the moment where sujetsu became like a massive fire-breathing fox in the sky and it's just like Uh i don't know why it really reminds me of aladdin (laughs) 
It was such an elaborate plan, which I appreciate because you know I love a clever villain. But I think I also was waiting for there to be a moment of hesitation. Not that he'd be redeemed, but that there'd be a moment where he had Mm -hmm. more, um, you're my daughter or something. Like, more humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Especially to his own child who's like accomplished him. And I guess he made one comment that was like, in a, if things had been different, I would have kept you or something, like something, but it wasn't true. Like, like I was expecting one moment of kind of like fatherly affection. Um, but yeah. I guess that wasn't really true to him and his kitsune-ness. Yeah, I guess so. But I think you're right. Like it would have made him a little bit more of a complicated character. But I guess that being said, like he was a complex character because the entire time you were like, who is this silver fox and what is he up to? Mm-hmm. Like he still was a mysterious character but like he really didn't give a crap about anyone like he just used everyone as his pawn like even you see you (laughs) see Taka was like discarded because he had no more use for him and even like after Suki leads them to the Kijo he's like okay uh you can go back to the afterlife like you yep. can leave now you're released i don't have yeah. any more use for you i got no more use for this guy and that was really his downfall too i guess because he sort of didn't think about what was motivating people out like he sort of thought he could just dismiss people but instead mm-hmm. by like betraying them and whatnot they turned on him like i, I almost feel like it's yeah. like a you can attract more bees with honey thing or whatever that saying is where he could have approached his daughter and Suki and some of these other characters a little bit differently and maybe actually accomplished his goal by not making himself their enemy. Sure. I mean, and I love that Suki stayed after he dismissed her. He was like, okay, bye. And she was like, what? No, like, I'm part of this story now. Like, this is my fight too. And when she brought back all the ghosts, all the rest of the crew. Oh my god, I can't even talk about that. Okay, wait, let's not get ahead. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, Suki really did some good stuff outside of being a pawn. Oh my goodness. Do you remember when we, the first, because she was the first chapter, right? Yeah. I mean, and she did matter, obviously, because we're just talking about it. But I remember trying to be like, okay, how does her dad relate? Like, what's the flute thing? Like, you know, like, where is this going to go? Well, they back? killed her in the first, like, yeah. paragraph of the first <laughs> book. So I was like, were we, were we supposed to care about this character? Yeah. I mean, the first time we saw Segetsu was in the alleyway when the wind witch was attacking with the weasel things um yeah Mm -hmm. I just I (laughs) loved but wanted to know a little bit more maybe about why he was so I guess part of it like was just he wanted power he'd been around for a long time he thought humans were greedy and stupid and selfish or whatever but I almost wanted more motivation for why he put into place this like very elaborate long plan very long con and how it started so long Mm -hmm. ago like and, and even, like, his treatment of Yumiko's mother, like, not only did he possess her husband, impregnate her, then steal her baby, he also, and like... made him, her fall in love with him. Like, he probably right. could have impregnated her without making her fall in love because they were married and yeah. there was a responsibility to produce an heir or whatever. But, like, she was heartbroken because she also trusted him. Right, but I think he did that purposely because he needed her anger to manifest this way into this Kijo. And just, like, the fact that he took advantage of her grief and, like, nurtured it to the point where it was so bad that it corrupted an entire island, like, that is demonic. Yeah, I can't even believe 
how much pain she was in yeah. from the story alone. But then when you look at how it man, like they said, most of them are humans who are like driven by rage or envy or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But this was just like her feelings alone. But he did something to anchor them, right? Yep. That's what the shrine was, I think. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So like he didn't even give her the possibility of healing. Like he just essentially kept her in like eternal suffering. It's so bad. So bad. But they did... Okay, I'm jumping ahead again. But okay. I was glad that y- Yumiko and her mom got a few good years together. They did. They deserved they did. it. They got to reconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's get to the fight. The start of the fighting. I was going to say, the fight? Which chapter? Fights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay, the first death that was real bad was... The stupid redhead stabs Okami. Yep. And then, of, of course, Dasuke stays to fight the demons because, like, the scorpion woman shows up. And they have this awful fight. And basically, Tatsumi and Yumiko were planning to stay and help, but they were like, no, you guys have to complete your mission. We can handle this. Right. They send them on. And it's kind of like they wanted to go down as heroes. They wanted to die fighting. They wanted to die together. And they all got that. But... Gosh, what a brutal way to go. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, just the image of, like, when Dasuki is stabbed, and then the, I think, it, is it the scorpion woman who stabs him? It's it's one of them. And he's, like, impaled on this weapon, and instead of, like, pushing back off it, he, like, grabs her and pulls him further along the sword so he can get close enough to stab her. Like, ugh! Yeah. Oh, Dasuki, what is wrong with you? I think that was the demon. I think Okami dealt with Scorpion Woman and shot her in the face. Right, right, right. While she, while he got stabbed. But yeah, and then they're both dying, but they do like drag mm-hmm. themselves to Okami each other. Okami drags himself oh. so they can die together. Oh, and then when he was like, I hope the afterworld has good sake. <laughs> yeah, such an Okami. Oh, it, till the end, Okami's lines are <laughs> great. <laughs> and I loved, I, I was... At first, I was really upset that Julie Kagawa killed off her two gay men. I was just like, well, that's shitty. Like, why can't they have a nice ending? But then I mm-hmm. I really liked when Suki, of course, is spying on them again. And she sees, um, like, the two orbs rise from them. Like, their souls rise. And, they, and she sees the souls recognize each other. And they, like, yep. do a little happy dance together and then, like, fade out. So... Yeah, they basically got their peace together in the afterlife. Exactly, yeah. And I did like that. And I felt like that was what they wanted to. Like, in in some ways, I feel like being denied a great death would have been, in Mm. some ways, disappointing for at least Isuke. Like, that was something I feel like he aspired to. And they weren't the only two to die. I think I would have felt a little bit differently if they were the only two. But really, like, everyone who was part of this fight ended up dying. Yeah, Everyone died. (laughs) I felt the same way. And, and like, that was the thing that redeemed itself because after those two die, Sujitsu... Oh, no. First they get... First Sujitsu wants Geno to summon the dragon. So <laughs> this part made me laugh out loud. When they finally find Geno and he's reading the um, mm-hmm. A Thousand Prayers, like he's reading the scroll and it's just yeah. a skull just like <laughs> sitting there reading the scrolls. I, like, could not keep a straight face. I was just imagining this, like, disembodied skull just sitting there reading. And Jeno, like, that climax was so anticlimactic because it was like, 
Okay, the dragon arrives, and then Geno just somehow left his skull unattended, which, like, rookie move, and Yumiko smashes it, and that gets rid of Geno. But in his defense, he did have the binding circle, which stopped Tatsumi when Tatsumi got closer, and I don't think he fully understood how powerful Yumiko had become, because she was able to, like, her kitsune fire stuff destroyed his Mm. spell right but yeah but then to your point it was as simple as i'm gonna smash this skull right here with a rock that's sitting right next to it (laughs) yeah and to be fair we knew by then that sujetsu was the one she was really gonna have to face at the end so we've defeated gino the but the dragon's been summoned so he arrives and then seigetsu tells them or corrupts the dragon or does something and the the dragon is now he shoots it yeah right so that's what that's where i thought the arrow that he used came from the shrine oh i thought he just shot the dragon to like make it angry and make it start rampaging possibly regardless he both gets shot and he's gone crazy whether those are connected or two separate things um but why did he need it to go crazy because he needed them to help him kill the dragon and that was what he thought would motivate them I guess. Okay, because he needed the God Slayer sword, basically. That was the only way to defeat the dragon? Yes. So now the dragon's airborne. And this is confusing because Yumiko, like, makes a carriage fly so that they can follow the dragon. And then Lady Hanshu appears out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. For some reason, she can fly, too. I sort of bought that because she has all this, like, dark magic or, like old magic oh it was like blood magic which she was using maybe possibly blood magic or shadow magic i just sort of bought that she's been around for a long time and it's kind of evil and like i could see her doing that i don't know so sure she can fly okay also (laughs) i sort of just accept a lot of things in this book at this point because i'm like yep (laughs) that makes sense (laughs) (laughs) but she dies very anticlimactically too because she like curses the dragon because she didn't have the foresight to ask for youth as well as immortality, so she's like a rotten corpse. Yeah, have you read any book ever? Oh my gosh, <laughs> like what a dumb move. Like you can really only blame yourself for that, but she chooses to blame the dragon. And But I do love how it's been 2,000 years, and a 1,000 years ago we know she tried again to come, and that's when... <laughs> her like own clansmen turned on her and the whole Kamakuroshi thing happened and like it's even though we didn't see her a ton I do love that she's just kind of this vain crazy woman and can you imagine like how pissed she must have been when she failed the first time and had to wait a thousand more years (laughs) I know that I mean at least she knows she can but yeah I I almost feel like I would have just like stopped being in charge of the clan and like lived in a hut for a thousand years and just waited or something. I don't know. Bided my time. <laughs> but, okay, here's my other question about her, though. I, that was another okay. slightly open thing. I thought there was going to be more between her and Hakimono. Me too. I didn't feel like it was completely un... Like, we know that they've... That she called him a thousand years ago and that piece of it. Yeah. So that sort of made sense to me, but I thought there might be more to that story that we would find out, but... Oh, well. Yeah, I wanted, like, more of a showdown between them. Um, So the dragon does not like being blamed for Lady Hanshu's mistake. And so she basically says, give me the wish I wanted or kill me. Uh, So he kills her. And he just, like, (laughs) strikes her with lightning and she's she's out of the picture. That was another thing, though. If you've been waiting 2,000 years to confront this dragon, you'd think you'd have a slightly (laughs) different 
approach or argument. She, she had long enough to plan. Because it sort of felt very whiny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like, I'm not happy. Can you fix it? <laughs> you should fix it because I'm not happy. <laughs> and if not, just kill me. Okay, then. <laughs> so, yeah. So, she's gone. Gina's gone. Crazy dragon is still on the loose. And we still have the gates to hell open down below. <laughs> uh, yes. But then... Tatsumi stabs the dragon because it's going to destroy the entire island if they don't put it down. So they eventually brought the little magic cart close enough to the dragon for him to do that. Yes. So even though they knew that Seigetsu was, like, using them, they really had no choice still because... They had to bring the dragon down. Yeah, Yeah, because otherwise the whole empire would have been destroyed. Okay, I buy that part. But then wasn't there something... So while he was on the dragon's head, where was Yumiko again? Well, Yumiko was having her magic sucked out of her mouth by Sejetsu because he was like, oh, yeah. you have something of mine. And she like throws up that orb. Um, yeah, he, I forgot about that. He takes his mm-hmm. magic that he lent her. And then he throws her out of the carriage. What a jerk. That was the part where, I, I mean, part of me gets it. Like, you should kill off people who are a threat to you maybe. But the other part of me was like, either kill them properly or like don't upset your daughter for no reason or you know I don't know (laughs) well he was like she was his daughter too like I wish yeah like you said she was half kitsune I wish that I don't know I wish they had more of a moment instead of him just being like bye I don't need you anymore even if it wasn't in this scene like when we found out he was bad I wish even in one of the flashbacks where he was just uh, another fox to her there was some moment where it was like yeah I am your dad yeah even if it was a trick I don't know but oh well something he he really doesn't have a heart (laughs) We're still only, like, what, partway through this this crazy... Maybe halfway. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so Tatsumi stabs the dragon, but then Sujetsu stabs Tatsumi and then takes Kamigurashi and finishes killing the dragon so he can take the jewel. Yes, and the jewel is the thing that makes him a god and immortal and... Exactly, yeah. Okay. And so the dragon's dying. The dragon, after the dragon is stabbed, it takes a really long time to fall. Did you notice that? Yes, but they also mentioned, like... Yumiko also was like, this is weird. It's like falling like a piece of cloth, not like a heavy dragon. So at least they acknowledged it was weirdly falling. Yeah. But yes, it was like floating or something, mostly. (laughs) And I did like that Yumiko was actually able to use her own magic to get them down. Um, She Mm -hmm. like uses that leaf to like lower them safely. And I really liked that because... Like, previously, she thought that her magic that was so strong was, like, a gift from Sujetsu, and she actually, like, Mm -hmm. calls upon her own magic and finds that it's really strong. Yeah, and she manages to make her illusions real, which is an extremely rare, powerful thing for a kitsune to be able to do. Yeah, I was so confused about that for a minute, because... Yeah, I'm glad they said something. Yeah. Because I was like, wait, how is this happening? Right, because she, like... (laughs) creates a bunch of tatsumis with a bunch of kamigurashis and then like one actually stabs sujetsu and i was like wait what but even the leaf that brought them down was like an illusion that was real too yeah right because Mm -hmm. i mean they can't sit on a leaf exactly yeah i really liked the with all the illusions that she was creating i loved the scene where sujetsu started using illusions too because there was that moment Mm -hmm. where like tatsumi thinks he killed sujetsu and then he sees two Yumikos, mm-hmm. and he thinks he was, like, with Yumiko, but the Yumiko was actually Sujetsu, and, like, he reached up and, like... Stabbed him. Stabbed him with his claw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that, too, because I almost thought it was weird that he wasn't using any illusions to fight back, 
at first. Mm -hmm. And so I was glad to see that he did. And there were so many layers to that. That would have been a cool scene to watch, I think, because we saw fake Tatsumis, fake Yumikos that made sense. And then we even saw like a Yumiko disguised as a Tatsumi that was still an illusion. And we, (laughs) I mean, like there were so many layers to it. And then to your point, seeing the other Yumiko. I agree. Like that would be an awesome scene to see in a movie where like Tatsumi is cradling Yumiko and they're having a moment. And then he looks up and sees another Yumiko walking towards him. And he's like, oh no, (laughs) that would be really cool. But then I was confused because did he also do that thing where he stabbed through himself? Tatsumi? He sure did. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't that just happen? Or is this the one time it did happen? Didn't that happen with Daisuke? Yeah, but differently. So this this is so gross. Daisuke was stabbed from the front and pulled himself onto the sword to get closer to the woman, to the demon that was stabbing him. But Tatsumi... Uh, Sajitsu was standing behind Tatsumi, so Tatsumi stabbed through him to stab Sajitsu, who was standing behind him. Which I feel like, could you not have just moved, like, a few inches to the left or right to not have to stab yourself? I don't know. It was certainly dramatic. I don't know. That seems like a very samurai thing to do, though, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, and then, but when he stabbed him, somehow... There were, like, memories being passed. Yeah. Was that just because of the sword itself? Or was that because... Why was that happening? Well, that was when... Wasn't that when Sujitsu actually died? So is it just, like, as he died, he was releasing his memories? Yeah, I think so. Because he has a moment before he dies where he like where he's like, Ah, oh, Hakimono, that was private. I just didn't get why his memory... Because we don't usually see memories from everything we kill. That's a good point, yeah. I don't really know why we saw the memories, but it was... It didn't really explain much either. We just saw, like, some glimpses of, like, box kits running around. And so I was like, okay, if you're going to show me memories, like, make them be interesting enough to, like, paint a cool picture of this guy. and give a backstory. Sympathy for him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was nothing of that. Yeah. I almost could have done without that part just because it almost confused me more. But that's okay. Um, And then, so this is, this part was cool too. So Tatsumi dies. This part's cool. Tatsumi dies. <laughs> <laughs> and Yumiko t- sees two souls emerging again. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was so cool that both of them were being pulled towards Kamigoroshi. Mm-hmm. Like the sword was trying to absorb them. And Hakimono did something very noble. He just didn't want to be annoyed for the next 1,000 years. You're I'm just right. kidding. <laughs> I know. He he was a changed demon. <laughs> he pushed Tatsumi's soul away like freed tatsumi's soul from the sword and and went into the sword himself Mm -hmm. where he said he would never go back again and i thought that was interesting that like some of tatsumi's like kindness rubbed off on Mm -hmm. him like they shared a soul for so long that like they're both changed Mm -hmm. they're changed yeah and even then when yumiko picks up kamigurashi hakimono's like ugh, i'm not gonna possess you because being so close to Tatsumi's soul has made me care. But he's he's also like, oh, it would be so easy. Like, you're making this, this is so not fair. Like, I loved that attitude about it. It felt legit uh-huh. because it would have been too much for him just to be like, oh, yes, I love you, Tatsumi. You know, whatever. I like that it was sort of like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I'm being this nice. Like, <laughs> And he lends her his power so she can get to the dragon and restore the dragon's jewel to it. Yeah, so once um, Sagetsu dies, they take the jewel back, and the thought is if they get it to the dragon before the dragon fully disappears, they, like, restore all their karma. 
<laughs> Essentially. <laughs> and this was the part that made me so sad. I, I just really loved this part of the book. So Suki leads all of the souls of Yumiko's companions mm-hmm. to her to help. And I just, like, I don't know. We, like, we always compared this to the Wizard of Oz of, like, this group of people like on a quest and it was Mm -hmm. just so heartbreaking at the end that everyone died except Mm -hmm. yumiko and she's alone like she has to like finish this mission alone and they all had good but heartbreaking deaths you know like yeah and so when she when when suki brings reika and desuki and okami and even chu the little dog appears and like although i kind of wanted master jiro and yeah where was he and the guy from the temple her original master isao or whatever his name was i kind of wanted i was like if you're gonna bring people back bring everybody back (laughs) yeah exactly master jiro was like yeah no thanks um i i don't know i just i found that part really really poignant yeah and i think it Again, death is a little bit different in these books. Like, I still, you know me, I'm always kind of, like, hoping not everyone survives if you go on a crazy (laughs) quest. And I got my wish this time because literally one person does. But I did love that death isn't as final here. We saw some of these souls really find peace. We saw them come back and help her and everyone kind of get a chance to say goodbye. And, again, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we even get this idea of, souls finding each other in their next lives and things like that so I like that it didn't feel as final which made sense because we've seen so many corpses Mm -hmm. ghosts souls etc so it was nice it felt like a good balance of yes they're gone but it wasn't just like they're gone and it's empty right now no I totally agree and that idea like that theme of like souls recognizing each other in different lives is like something that I have always Mm -hmm found like really fascinating and like I don't know I've always really loved that idea and so yeah at the end Mm -hmm. she gives the dragon back his jewel and basically as a prize for relinquishing this power back to the dragon he grants her the wish and she has the option of wishing her friends back but she smartly wishes to close the gates of Jigoku instead but she does it in a in an interesting way right she says something like everyone who doesn't belong on earth gets sent back to Jigoku or she does something that also frees Hakimono from Kamagoroshi. I love that and that was like an unexpected bonus that she didn't really intend but like the way she worded it Hakimono gets free too. And she was happy for she wasn't like oh oh no I accidentally let him go and he was also like thankful like I Again, he was still himself enough where he was basically like, I'm over Earth. You're not going to see me here for a while. Like, he was changed, but he wasn't like... He was still a demon, yeah. I I love that balance of like, he's still himself, but he's like a better version of himself. He's like, I won't be back for a very long time. I'll be back. (laughs) But you won't have to worry about me. (laughs) Yeah, you're fine, but I'm still a demon. (laughs) You're fine for now. (laughs) Um, And then katsumi's soul before he leaves he says that he will always keep looking for yumiko and that like really got mm-hmm. me oh when he was like i'll never stop looking for you like that idea is like something that like really gets to me i, I like really was like tearing up when i was reading this book and i don't think i've ever cried when reading one of our books ever but like i yeah I got, it, it got me it was a nice moment and way to kind of connect her still being there and him being gone but there being some hope and peace and like they 
accomplish something. And in some ways it was even better because I sort of feel like Tatsumi could have never had a normal life. Like, yes, it would have been nice if they had some time together, mm-hmm. but it would have been like really hard. In some ways I, I'm kind of glad that he has the chance to come back and like be a normal person. Yeah, and that part was confusing to me a little bit. So at the very end, like we said, Kiyomi finds Yumiko and names her her heir. And then she still like acknowledges that she's young and she has this kitsune nature. So she's like, I give you permission to travel, see the world. And mm-hmm. she does. Like she spends years wandering as a fox. But then I was like, you're so alone. Like I just felt bad that she spent so many years alone before she returns to take over as leader of the Moon Clan. Well, yes and no. She mentions at some point that like a hundred years to a Kitsune is not that long. That's true. And I do think, especially knowing her, she had special time with her mom and they got to focus on their relation. Like I think I don't think she was just sitting there waiting around for Tatsumi. Yes, it was kind of sad that he wasn't there, but I think on these adventures where she was helping people and like probably making friends and then she had this time to really invest in her relationship with her mom and like learn about these people that she was going to lead. That's a good point. I agree. It's It feels like a long time, but because they said something like it's like a blink of an eye to a kitsune, mm-hmm. I sort of, it bothered me less. That's a good point. And we just know she makes friends. I mean, she's such a, she draws people to yeah. her. So I, even if she didn't have love, I don't think she, or didn't have romantic love, I don't think she was necessarily lonely or without love at all. Uh, yeah, I, I would like to think so too. And I think you're right. Because even, I think it was Dasuki who was like, you drew, like, your light drew us to you. Mm-hmm. Which is beautiful. And then I love how it ends with her sending these lanterns down the river to honor her friends. And then, so Tatsumi shows up in, this was his soul reincarnated, correct? I believe so. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think she recognized his soul in a new body, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that. Oh, I love that so much. I love it too, except I almost wanted more of it. Like, I wanted to actually see them interact. I mean, I think it worked, but just the, like, part of me that was so excited wanted to see more. Oh, no, I like the way it ended. Or even, because that was, that was the grandson who asked his grand, like, insisted that they come. So did he know, or how much did he know, or did he just recognize her when he saw her, or did he... That's a good question. Like, did he recognize her right away? I think he, I don't know. I don't remember his last words, but he was like, I finally found you, or something like that. That's true. I think I think you're right. It was nice. It was a good moment. And it was, to your point, I like that they were uh, recognizing the deaths 100 years mm-hmm. later. And even the moment where she was like, should I put my mom's name on? No. Like, there's other times when I honor her. This is for those who died in this particular yeah. crazy series of battles that took place in less than 24 hours. And that she was able to make the island, not just her, her mom and her and, and whatnot, that this... Remember how cool that island was when we first got there? That, like, all yeah. the kami and, the, and all these, like, different creatures and humans were all living in peace. And I love that that's where she ended up making her home and, like, was able to restore that. Oh, it was perfect for her. Yeah. So I, I was very, very satisfied with the end. Okay, but here's my next question. So okay. if 100 years was nothing to her and Tatsumi is a human again, or new Tatsumi... Is he going to just keep dying and them refinding each other every hundred years? Or I don't know. I had that question too. And it's also kind of like that weird vampire thing where like vampires yeah. are immortal. And so they're like 500 years old and they're like dating 17 year olds, which I think is like a problem. Like even though you look young, you're not young. Yeah. So 
let's just not worry about it. <laughs> okay. We're just going to end on the happy note. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you do get the sense of his soul recognition. Like, you know how people can have old souls or, like, be described as an mm-hmm. old soul? Like, I don't know how yeah. all that plays into it, but... So it reminded me so much of, like, I wrote this, like, podcast drama a while back, and it ends, like, pretty much very similar to this book, which is kind of weird. I forgot about that. Yeah, you're... Like, it's almost exact. Like, there's a a part where the main character is like, I'll never stop looking for you in the next life. And then they find each other, and in my version, they were both reincarnated at the same time, so they were the same age, because I wanted to avoid that whole, like, Mm -hmm. immortal dating a 17-year-old. Yeah. But I was reading this book, and I was like damn, this is, like, really strangely similar to what I wrote, like, like a year ago. (laughs) Does that make you feel even better about your ending, that it works so well here? Well, yeah, I guess it was just kind of, like, I loved this ending so much because that idea of, like, souls recognizing each other and reincarnation and, like, finding the one you're meant to be with, like, against all odds is, like, such Mm -hmm. an important theme to me and one that I've just always loved. So, like, I was really excited to see that another author used it and that it was equally as important to her. I don't know. I kind of felt like, oh, we're kind of kindred spirits. Yeah. No, and it's fun. Again, I actually like happy endings, believe it or not, but I also (laughs) just hate when they're like unrealistically happy. I felt like this was the perfect balance of he died, she waited 100 years, but it all works out still. They still found each other. They like the balance of it really Mm -hmm. worked for me too. It's happiness with a dash of heartache, which I like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way to, to describe it. Those are always the best kind of endings. Oh my goodness. And that everything we just talked about was like two hours of activity and then a hundred years <laughs> at the end. <laughs> did we think of a fan name? Oh, I think we did. Yeah, we did. did. We, weren't we going to be commie touched? Yes, I think you're right. I still like that. Okay, me too. Um, and we have to do a rating. Out of how many... Of nine tails. I was going to say, how many <laughs> tails are we going to give this? But do we do it out of nine or do we just do it out of ten still? Well, it has to be out of nine. Okay. I'm going to do seven. Okay. I was going to do seven and a half. Okay. Which, like, I don't know. I found it really hard to think of a rating for this one because I would say if we were just rating it on originality, I would give it nine. Like, nine out of nine. Like, I would give it the mm-hmm. highest rating because I think this book was so original compared to a lot of the books we've read like totally all of the Japanese lore that she incorporated and just like really cool themes of like a a possessed sword and and again the way so many things connected from the very first book through to the end and I think a lot of the characters were well fleshed out like yes it was Yumiko and Tatsumi's story but like all of her gang I thought were pretty well-developed mm-hmm. characters and there was a lot to love. I just think there were there were just some missed opportunities for me. And I think you said that a while back and I think that's like a really good way to phrase mm-hmm. it. Like there were some things I think that could have been done that would have made it a better book, even if it meant maybe cutting out some demons along the way just to be more character-centric. Yeah. But like I said, if it was just out of creativity and originality – nine out of nine for sure and we've said this before I liked it more and more as it went on and I got used to the characters and the world and the pace and everything I really struggled at the beginning 
And that would be my advice if someone was starting this to like give it a little bit longer than you might if you're not loving it at first because once it starts to make sense, it really takes off. Mm -hmm. But it is a little, I thought it was still a little rough at the beginning for me. I agree. It was a bit of a struggle, but once it settles, it really gets good. Don't give up. Don't get overwhelmed at the beginning. (laughs) It's worth it. I am very curious because she's, uh, we've talked about this at the beginning, Julie Kagawa has written several other series most of which I don't think have anything to do with Japanese lore. So I'm curious about some of her other books as well. I I enjoyed her writing. I'd be curious to see how a completely different world and what's similar and what's different in a different series. Me too. Absolutely. But I would also, I would definitely read other books by her for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I almost don't want to do research because I feel like we ended it so well, but. (laughs) Well, I also feel like, Again, this is how what I've struggled with the whole time. There's just like so much here, but we also learn about a lot of the things in the course of the story. Like I learned so much about gods, demons, creatures, like stuff from Japanese culture just from reading it. Even the stuff that you looked up about Kitsunis like and Ninetales like has all come back around. Well, I did a little bit of research this week on the Kijo, okay. the female OG. I thought she was fascinating, actually. Yeah, that was really, really interesting. So, yes, it is similar to an ogre or a female demon, and they live in remote mountains and caves and, like, secluded areas. So does that mean all Oni are male? So this is, uh, this is actually kind of interesting. So they say that Kijos are the female equivalent of Oni, but they're really not. Like, they're completely separate. So, like, Oni are presented as, like, working for hell or, like, working for the evils of hell, whereas, like, Kijo kind of work alone and they're not really tied to the idea of Jigoku. Like, they're really just manifestations of suffering. So, like, Mm. most Kijo were, were women who turn into this evil creature because of, like, karma, resentment jealousy, rage, suffering, grief, like all those emotions that everyone has. Um, I kind of dislike the idea that it's like, oh, women are like so emotional that they turn into demons. Like, Or is it something like there's no other release for them in society? So yeah, they keep it inside. Like they can't just go and become a samurai and like get revenge or something. No, I agree. It sort of bothered me too that it was only women, but I was trying to see it as a societal problem and not a gender problem or something. Yeah, which, like, that totally makes sense to me. Like, they have no other outlets, and they're expected to be, like, this, you know, perfect, ideal woman, and so they just bury their grief and, like, keep it inside instead of, and, like, deal with it themselves rather than, you know, try and share it with someone, which I think is a great point. And then it essentially transforms them into, like, a beast. So they say um, their diet is they're omnivores. They will eat anything and anybody, particularly travelers. <laughs> um, I love that. They're omnivores. <laughs> so they say some have red or yellow eyes, blue skin, sharp horns, long claws, or other supernatural features. I think if this book was done as a movie well, it would be awesome. But I could see yeah. a lot of ways corners would be cut and it would not be good yeah I could see it being like like if you could do all of these creatures and like 
the CGI or what I don't even know movie terms, but like really made it visually what it should be, it would be incredible. But I feel like there's so much to it that I could see either plot getting cut or the visual elements getting cut or something like that. I mean, I think it would make a fantastic anime. It, yeah, and that's what you said she was kind of inspired by, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Kijo feature heavily in Japanese legends. They're in a lot of fairy tales. They're in a lot of kabuki plays, films, etc. So one of the stories that is uh, pretty famous for featuring a Kijo is called The Legend of Momiji. And so I wrote it down. Okay, so the translation literally means maple leaves. Okay. And the story goes that long ago there was a witch named Momoji and she lived in the mountains and her story takes place during the season of fall leaf viewing, which I guess is where the name maple leaf comes from. Um, And this is when people would gather in the mountains for festivals and they would like take in the foliage. So during this time there was a samurai named Taira no Koromochi and his job was to hunt Oni. Okay. So he his hunt took him far away into the mountains where a particularly nasty Kijo was said to live. Koromochi and his men climbed up the mountain and they came upon a small group of nobles having a leaf viewing party, as nobles are wont to do. <laughs> we should have a leaf viewing party one day. <laughs> are we noble enough? <laughs> um, we don't even have leaves out here. So he sent one of his men ahead to kind of like inquire what was going on and the man came back and reported that there was supposedly a noble princess was hosting the leaf viewing party but um, her ladies-in-waiting would not tell him the princess's name. So Korimoshi was about to continue on his mission when one of the ladies-in-waiting approached him and told them that her mistress, the princess, had heard of Korimoshi before and that she wanted to invite them to her party. Um, So he was like, sure, let's go. Um, (laughs) At the party, the warriors were introduced to Princess Sarashina. And she was very, very beautiful. Of course. And they sat and they enjoyed watching the leaves. They drank sake. They danced. And then Korimochi asked if the princess would dance for him. And she did. And the men became drunk and sleepy. And they fell asleep under the beautiful trees. But as he slept, Korimochi dreamed that... The princess Sarashina was actually a Kijo, the Kijo Momiji in disguise, and that he had to kill her with his holy katana. Oh, man. <laughs> and so when Korimochi woke up, the holy katana was actually in his hand. And then he realized that what he dreamed was real. So he chased after the women, and then a huge firestorm broke out, and the flame and winds lit up the mountain, and then a 10-foot-tall Kijo with horns made of burning trees appeared. And there was an intense battle between all the samurai and the Kijo. And in the end, thanks to his magical sword, Koromochi was able to slay the witch of the mountain. So I have two lessons from this. Mm-hmm. One, we should always have a magic sword handy. Yeah. And two, if you are a demon witch, don't invite people who can kill you to your leaf viewing party. That, those are my two takeaways. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I think I would agree on both fronts. So she was able to hide her identity, though, the whole time? She just, like, acted like a regular princess and danced and stuff? Yeah. My, my other takeaway would be don't underestimate women. Yeah, that's fair. Because <laughs> we will wait for you to fall asleep and then turn into demons and stab you. And always listen to your dreams, because my dreams always 
are accurate. (laughs) So that was kind of a fun story. (laughs) No, that was a fun story. I didn't do a ton of research. I remember at the beginning how I was like fascinated between like ninjas versus samurai. Yeah. In this book, as we head into the valley with the gates of hell open and all the demons coming out, we also hear about this other group of warriors called the Ashigaro. Oh. And... Okami basically makes a couple of statements about how they're just like farmers and, and whatnot. But I was curious about them because I didn't know that term before. Um, and I guess they really are like equally as important, but often overlooked in terms of like samurai culture. Aww. It says Japan's overlooked and underappreciated warriors. They did all the work and samurai got all the credit. Ugh, so typical. Um, obviously, it's a little bit biased, but they started out as farmers and they were like pulled from the fields kind of like fodder for the army just to have like more bodies but as time went on they learned how to they like basically became a professional fighting force just by nature of following along (laughs) in these battles I guess yeah Yeah. exactly but a, a lot of the farmers wanted to go into this even though they were untrained they would just take their farming tools or they'd loot dead samurai and they weren't paid and they weren't outfitted, but they could make like a substantial living just off of the loot that they got from going on these like hmm. raids or whatever, whatever. So they found that like being an Ashigaru was more like financially lucrative than being a farmer. And so a ton of people ended up choosing this sort of vagabond fighter lifestyle and tagging along with samurai armies. And basically what I was reading was most stories that you hear about samurai had like forces of both and that these Ashigarus also became like a part of the warrior class and you know learn to fight and sort of be an upwardly mobile uh, social group and whatnot so um like oh, as time went on they started getting better weapons and more training and they were more than just simply farmers but uh it was sort of interesting because I felt like we had seen a ton of samurai but we hadn't seen much of this so they were they sort of started out as this we need more bodies. Let's just get these farmers in here to like take whatever you can, bring your rake. We'll see what happens. But uh, they were like, oh, this isn't as bad as farming and became more of a legit fighting force. And and also like maybe not as bad as being a samurai, just because like from what we've read about being a samurai, like it kind of sucks. Like, I don't think I'd want to be a samurai. Like they have to live by that code of honor and it's so complicated. And, you know, if you mess up, you have to commits puku like yeah i don't know maybe it was like a good middle ground yeah and especially like you were like semi especially once you started getting some training but to your point you weren't held to like that same standard or expectation if if that wasn't important to you and you just wanted to like make some good money and hang out with the bros and like shoot things or whatever yeah you don't have to live by a super strict code that forces you to kill yourself if you step out of line <laughs> yep um very cool there was also so, like, samurais were against guns, and rifles were, like, offensive because the thought was even, like, a lowly peasant could kill a fully trained samurai with an itchy trigger finger or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, it, like, wasn't a respected form of, you know, the warriors, like, didn't respect it as, as a weapon. But, obviously, the daimyos and whatnot, like, the people who wanted to win were like, this is pretty effective. Yeah. So, they... they uh, <laughs> brought firearms into their armies and guns were kind of seen as peasant fare but a lot of the ashigaru had guns 
while, while samurais had more of these like swords and like beautiful traditional skill-based weapons hey if it does the job yeah but yeah there were some interesting stories but i didn't do a ton of research but again okami just makes these interesting comments and i was like oh these people are interesting and i think when we saw the lantern ceremony the other person who mentioned making a lantern said like oh my great-grandfather was an ashigaru in the battle and so it came around twice Ah. but it wasn't a huge plot point by any means but i'm just fascinated by all these different types of warriors in in japan because i don't i didn't know a lot about it before yeah and the hierarchy it really is kind of fascinating and it is i mean it's interesting to think about how i guess this makes sense but over time as like civil war becomes more or less important and weapons change and other aspects of civilization are established or not like how things become respected or not respected or just like the ups and downs of of these different classes as well is kind of fascinating i agree I know it's been a long episode. We only did. We had to. T- we, I feel like we had to talk more because so much happened in this half of the book. <laughs> I know, and usually I feel like the last episodes of our podcasts are not super long because it's like I don't know. We get to the climax and then nothing happens. We're not predicting. Yeah, <laughs> there was just there was a lot to discuss. So, do you want to talk about our next book? Oh yeah, it's a duology we're doing next, right? Sure is. Tell us about it. We are kind of. Staying in the realm of Asia, Eastern Asia. So we are going to read Spin the Dawn by Elizabeth Lim. And this, yes, this is a duology. Uh, The first book is called Spin the Dawn. And the second book is called Unravel the Dusk. And we are going to read up to chapter 19 for our next episode. Um, It's about halfway through Spin the Dawn. Do you want me, do you need me to read the back? Yes, please. I forgot like because I've been so in this world I forgot this one is next and I'm actually super excited for this as well me too okay on the fringes of the great spice road Maya Tamarin works as a seamstress in the shop of her father once a tailor of renown she dreams of becoming the greatest tailor in the land but as a girl the best she can hope for is to marry well when a royal messenger summons her ailing father to court Maya poses as his son and travels to the summer palace in his place. She knows her life is forfeit if her secret is discovered, but she'll take that risk to save her family from ruin and achieve her dream of becoming the imperial tailor. There's just one catch. Maya is one of 12 tailors vying for the job. The competition is cutthroat and Maya's job is further complicated by the unwelcome attention of the court enchanter Eden, who seems to see straight through her disguise but nothing could have prepared her for the final challenge to sew three gowns so dangerously beautiful it will take a quest to the ends of the earth to complete them. It's like Project Runway meets Mulan. I'm super excited. (laughs) I know, we're going to have pretty outfits, and I love, we've talked about this, I love stories where girls disguise themselves as guys. I don't know why I love them so much, but I really do. I'm such a sucker for it. (laughs) I don't know, the stakes seem so high, and like there's so much, like, People doubting women and, like, saying bad things about them and then being proved wrong. I love it. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm definitely excited for this one. So, And it's a duology, which will go quick. Although, after this series, I almost need something to just take its time. I hope it starts a little slower. Me too. Um, <laughs> Hopefully there are no demons. But... I don't know. Hopefully we only have one enemy in the first half of the first book. <laughs> but, but, yeah, definitely excited to read that one. And sad to say goodbye to... Our little fox and demon slayer yeah. friends, but glad that they have 
peace for now. <laughs> they found each other. Hope they have a good afterlife together. Do you have a joke for me? Or is it my turn? No, I think it's my turn. I do have a joke. I think it is too. Okay. Okay, what happens when a bossy man goes into a bar? Um, he orders a drink. Oh, you are close. Ooh, he orders a drink. I don't know what else my is. <laughs> he orders everyone around. Oh, uh, that's good. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, do you remember when you used to be able to go into a bar and order around? Vaguely. <laughs> I think I read about that once in one of our fantasy novels. In a history book somewhere. <laughs> in the far, far past. <laughs> Okami would not be happy about not being able to go in and oh get my some God. sake. <laughs> Akami would have like a sake of the month club that he immediately subscribed to and would just be like drunk on his balcony every day. Oh my goodness. Hopefully with Tsuki. He's he's my favorite from the, this series, for <laughs> sure. I loved him. He was just such a great, like, I just love the idea of, like, a fallen samurai with a heart of gold, you know? Yep. <laughs> like, well, and the sarcasm. Um, again, he would have been the pirate prince in this story, I think. Totally. Yeah. Which is my favorite, always. Well, maybe we'll get a pirate prince in the new series. We'll see. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Um, if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at mnktalkya. Now let's start reading our next series. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.